We're continuing on in our series through the book of Nehemiah, a series that we've entitled A Faith That Moves You Forward. A faith that moves you forward, being reminded that our faith is not a stagnant faith, that it is, it is to be progressing, that it is to be moving as we're being sanctified to look more like Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 9. And I, I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word, Nehemiah chapter 9. And I'm gonna, we're going to read this chapter in its entirety because I'm just going to shoot you straight. What's recorded in this chapter is far better than anything I'm going to be able to preach to you. So we're going to hear the word of God. Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning there in verse 1, it says, On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and it put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. And while they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And then they spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Sh- and Shin and I stood on the raised platform built for the Levites and cried out loudly to their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to all of them and all the stars of heaven worship you. You, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites the Hethites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Jebusites, and the, and the Jergashites, to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all of his officials, and the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them and they crossed through it on dry land. You hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into a raging water. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. You revealed your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commands, statutes, and instructions through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land you had sworn to give them. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. 
even after they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, and they had committed terrible blasphemies, you did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and established boundaries for them. They took possession of the land of King Sheon, of Heshbon, and the land of King Og, of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of the sky and brought them to the land you told their ancestors to go in and possess. So their descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and the surrounding peoples over them to do as they pleased with them. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands, and they took possession of well-supplied houses, cisterns cut out of rock, vineyards, olive groves, and the fruit trees in abundance. They ate and were filled, became prosperous, and delighted in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs, and they killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemy, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. In your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. But as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them in the power of their enemies who dominated them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. You warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly. They would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if he does them. They, they stubbornly resisted, stiff their necks, and they would not obey. But you were patient with them for many years. Your spirit warned them through the prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are gracious and a compassionate God. So now our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us. Our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today, you are righteous concerning all that has happened to us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. If that is not our story, our kings, our leaders, our priests and ancestors, they did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, they, were not, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. And here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings that you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of a faith that confesses. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people because we need to hear from you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Amen. Is that not a sweet passage of scripture? It took about seven minutes to read, so I just started my timer over. Chris, will you hit that monitor for me? Faith that confesses. On September 1st, 1939, one of the greatest wars in history began. One of the main causes was the rise of Adolf Hitler and with him a nationalism that saw everyone else as inferior. This, <clears throat> this nationalism would be a sin in Germany with devastating consequences for years to come. But at 4.40 a.m. on September 1st, 1939, a German battleship fired on a Polish military depot transit, and the first bombs fell that would start a war that would last six years. It would include more than 50 nations and over 100 million soldiers. When all was said and done, between 70 to 85 million people would lose their lives. And though the war would end nearly six years to, to the day, Hitler's rise in ideology would not see victory. The devastation and consequences would have effects for years to come, with Germany itself feeling most of them. It's a war that reshaped the world as we know it, and a war like that cannot, nor should it ever be, forgotten. But what was interesting, as a result of that, just a few years ago, in 2019, world leaders gathered there in Poland to commemorate the tumultuous time in world history that happened 80 years prior. And the one-day commemoration took place on the same day, September 1st, that the world War II started. It began at the same time, at 4.40 a.m., same time those first bombs fell. But during that commemoration, something significant happened. Some of you might remember watching this. I remember I watched it. During that commemoration, the current German president, Frank Walter Steinmeier, apologized for World War II. He had a lengthy speech, but this is what stood out to me in it. He said, I ask for forgiveness for Germany's historical guilt, and I recognize our enduring responsibility. Now, some people were very frustrated with Steinmeier for doing that. Why would this man, who wasn't even born by the time World War II ended, why would he claim responsibility for actions he did not commit? Why would he apologize? And, and so Steinmeier was asked about this, and he would later articulate that, that what he understood was that the sins of the past are often not distinct from the present circumstances and temptations. That often our current struggles reflect struggles of the past. And Steinmeier understood that in order to continue to move forward, you have to reckon with the mistakes that have gone before. And I want to contend this this morning, that that reality, that, that in order to continue to move forward, you have to reckon with the past, that it's not just significant when it comes to understanding world wars. It's also significant when it comes to our faith. Here's what I want to communicate to you this morning as we examine Nehemiah 9. Often, often for us as Christians, we see the need for confession as, as a stop in our faith. As, as if we're somehow having to, to move back now because we're having to confess sins. But what I want to argue is that confession is not, is not your faith stopping. It's not your faith slowing down. It's not your faith moving backward. That when we confess, it's actually evidence of a faith moving forward. 
It's not a break. It's a discipline that propels our faith forward. The very act of confession is evidence of just how amazing the God is we place our faith in. And so I want to try to show you that this morning. There are four things I want to try to draw out from this text that, that, that I want you to see about confession that I think will hopefully help us understand the necessity of confession when it comes to our faith moving forward. Before I give you those four things, let me, let me get you up to speed where we are in the story. So at this point, led by Nehemiah, more of the people of God who had been previously exiled have now returned to Jerusalem. You guys who have been here, you know the story. They've faced opposition all along the way. But after arriving in Jerusalem, after spending 52 days hard at work, they rebuild the walls of the city. Along the way, they've had to deal with internal issues of injustice. They've had to deal with, with cultivating protection from external enemies, and they've had to wrestle with their own future. But at the end of rebuilding, things are starting to look better. But then last week, we looked at, at chapter 8 and saw how even though the physical restoration of, of Jerusalem is somewhat coming to a close, that now the spiritual restoration has to begin. And so the people of God, on the first day of the seventh month, in chapter 8, they ask for the law of God to be read, and it's read for hours on end. As the law is read, the people are broken over their sin. They begin to weep and to mourn. But if you remember back to last week, they're told, hey, not today. Today's not a day of mourning. Today's not a day of weeping. Today is a day of celebration. Today we celebrate the fact that God is with us. And then they participate in the feasts of booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and they worship their God who delivers. And the celebration continues for many days. But now we find ourselves in the same month, but rather than it being the first day, we're now on the 24th day of the month. Verse 1 tells us that on the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and they had put dust on their heads. And so the people of God are continuing in their worship, but they're continuing to wrestle with their sin. And in this chapter, we see a beautiful picture of faith that confesses. Now, I read it to you. I think it's, I think it's an amazing chapter of Scripture. There is so much beauty. There is so much depth to this chapter, but we're going to have to take the 30,000-foot approach this morning, okay? But I want to encourage you, man, go spend the next week in Nehemiah chapter 9. And, and parse this thing out because it is so beautiful. So I'm hoping to give you kind of the foundation for your study for the rest of the week. Amen? You with me? All right. So I want to give you four significant truths about confession as we hopefully understand how confession is significant for our faith. If we are to have a faith that is moving forward. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. Confession is part of our praise. Confession is part of our praise. Look again at verses 1 through 5. It says, on the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and they had put dust on their heads. Those of Israel descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins, the iniquities of their ancestors. While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and they spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. Then verses 4 and 5. You've got the first group of Levites there. I'm not doing the names again. I did it great, I did it great the first time. I actually think I got them all right, so let's not, let's not mess that up. But, but, but they stand and they cry out loudly to their God. But then, then the Levites come and they say in verse 5, stand up. 
Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be the glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. So the people of God, they gather together and as they do, they come wearing wearing sackcloth, they come fasting and with dust on their heads. And those actions are significant in that you get the sense of where their hearts are in this moment. These actions are all connected to mourning and repentance. They are ideally visual pictures of an inward humility and desperation for God. But then what they do is they separate themselves from the foreigners. And what this is, as one commentator explains, it's, it's a separation in order to come before their God, and it applies to the entire confessing community. And this is consistent, right, with the covenant people of God in the Old Testament because God commanded in Leviticus 20, verse 26, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. So the people of God are trying to not only hear the word, but they're trying to respond to the word in faithfulness. Again, we see this more in three and four. While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law again. They spent a fourth of the day reading. They spent a fourth of the day in confession. I mean, don't, don't, don't miss that. It goes back to last week, right? Like, our Bible intake fails in comparison to the people of God. They spend six hours listening to the word and then they spend six hours in confession. Six hours. Some of us got 10 minutes this week. But here's what I want you to see. There's something beautiful there in verse three. It says they spend another fourth of the day in confession and worship to the Lord their God. Now, this is what's interesting. That root word for confession there in verse three in Hebrew is the word yadah. That word is used 114 times in the Old Testament. The majority of that time, that root word is translated to mean one of two things, either confession or praise. And it really depends on the context which definition you would use. And this is fascinating to me. Listen, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I find it fascinating that the same word for confession is the same word for praise. But then when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because what is confession if it is not a declaration of praise? I mean, when, when we confess our sins, we are declaring that there is a God who sets the moral standard. We are recognizing that there is a God who knows what is morally right and what is morally wrong, but we are also admitting that there is an authority over our life and we have neglected to submit to that authority. But there's more. When we confess our sins, we are acknowledging that there is actually a God who will forgive those sins because what's the point of confession if there is no absolution? Like we are recognizing the character and the nature of our God. We are appealing to the grace and the mercy of God. And in that, we are praising God by giving him the glory that is rightly due his name. Listen to me. Confession is not something we do to prepare for praise and worship. Confession is part of our praise and worship. I remember <clears throat> a few years ago, there's a service that I, as well as probably about 10, 15 other pastors, most of us Western pastors that we were teaching at, so a few weeks before that service was to take place, we, we gathered to help plan the order of service, right? Uh, it was a service of praise and celebration. I'll be frank with you, I have no idea what we were praising or celebrating. I don't even remember that at all. I know I was a part of it. But there is one moment, not about the service, but about the planning that has stood out to me for years. 
as we were talking about praise and celebration, so right, we're, we're, I mean, put yourself there. We're in this room, a bunch of pastors, like we really love Jesus. We want to celebrate. We're talking about the songs that we can sing that will help us celebrate, what scriptures we can read, who's going to say what, who's going to pray when. We're thinking about the order of the service. And then one of the pastors who had sat silently for the entire meeting, he's probably in his, I mean, church late 80s, older African-American pastor, he finally spoke. And this is what he said. He said, where... <clears throat> Where are we going to put the time of confession in this service of celebration? Now, I'll be honest with you, it caught me off guard. But I was smart enough to know to keep my mouth shut. You see, I, I'm, I'm still fairly young at this game, right? Like, I've been pastoring for 15 years. That's still pretty early in this, at least, Lord willing, that's early for me. Uh, I was younger then, but there's one thing that I learned really early on, was that when shepherds who have shepherded faithfully for decades speak, you need to listen to their wisdom. Well, apparently one of the other younger pastors didn't learn that lesson. And I'm so thankful that he didn't, church, because this is what he said in response. I'll never forget. He said, oh, I mean, he's trying to be sweet. Or he said, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe we weren't clear. Like talking to this man like he doesn't know. Anyway, maybe we weren't clear. He said, this service is about celebration, and I'm pretty sure a time of confession wouldn't help what we're trying to accomplish. Again, be honest with you. I was thinking it. I just wasn't stupid enough to say it. And he was stupid enough to say it. But I praise God for that because, church, I'm telling you, this older saint preached a whole sermon to us in just a few lines. I mean, as you can imagine, he gently smiled like a pastor who has put in the work would do. He said, I, I understand what we are trying to do. We are trying to praise God for his faithfulness. We're trying to celebrate the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. Are we not? And we all, yeah, we are. And he said, one thing I've come to learn in my years of life is there is no better way to celebrate the grace and the mercy of God than by declaring how much we need it. And nothing says we need the grace and mercy of God quite like asking for it as we confess our sins. Church, it's one thing to sing the songs about God's grace and mercy, and we should. It's another thing to fall on your face and say, God, I need that grace and mercy. See, here's what that pastor understood. Here it is. Again, what I'm trying to get you to see, confession is not something we do to prepare for praise and worship. Confession is praise and worship. And as our praise begins with confession and we recognize the faithfulness of God, we will often see our mourning turn into celebration. That's exactly what happens in verse 5. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kedmiel, Benai, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethah, Pethahiah said, stand up. Blessed be the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise, because confession forces us to reckon with our own shortcomings, but as we bring them to God, we praise the, the fact that we find out that God is gracious and merciful nonetheless. But this leads to the second truth I want you to see about confession. Confession honors God in his proper place. So, so go with me. So after the Levites call the people in the midst of confession, they're in verse five, they're in the midst of confession and mourning, calls them to stand up and bless God. Ezra begins to lead a prayer of praise in verse six. 
Do a little technical work. I don't know what translation you are using. Some of your translations may recognize that at the beginning of verse 6, it's Ezra speaking. Some of you, like my Bible, may make a footnote of it. I do believe that the conversation shifts here. It's no longer the Levite speaking, but it is Ezra himself praying this prayer of praise. But watch this. They go from primarily acknowledging their sin to remembering all that God has done. Their recognition of sin in verse 5 actually leads them to honor God more. I mean, one commentator notes this. He picks up, he says, this entire prayer is dominated by the works of God, right? It's not dominated by their shortcomings. It's dominated by the goodness, the works, the grace, the mercy of God. I mean, just consider that in this prayer, nearly 40 times the actions of God are highlighted with statements that begin with or contain the word you. You created. You give life. You have fulfilled your promise. You performed signs and wonders. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea. You hurled the pursuers into the depths. You led them. You came down. You gave the law. You revealed. You saw. You provided. You brought. You spoke. You sent. You multiplied. You subdued. You heard. You warned. This isn't a prayer about the people. This is a prayer that, that from their confession flows this recognition of we might be the worst, but God is the best. And that begins with confession because confession forces us to honor God in his proper place. So watch this. They, they confess because they recognize they have offended a holy God, but this recognition of an offense forces them to remember who the God is they have offended. And as a result, they begin to praise Because here's what I want you to see. Proper confession does not make the confessor the center of the story, but rather the God who has been sinned against. I mean, listen, in a lighter, lower, lesser way, don't we know this to be true? Go apologize to somebody and make it all about you and see how that goes. I'm a husband married for how many years? Twelve years. Listen... Listen, I'm leaning on the spirit. He didn't tell me, okay? Uh, 12 years. I've had some good apologies to my wife. I've had some bad apologies. She's perfect. She didn't have to apologize to me. I made up for it. Y'all see that? All right. The apologies that focus all on me tend to not go very well. But when I recognize the party that I have offended, I recognize that she does not deserve this, that she was faithful when I was faithless tends to be a more significant confession. Well, how much more when we come to the Lord? If we're the center of the story of our confession, we've missed the mark because what confession does is it it forces us to recognize our sin, but then we look at the God that we have sinned against and what we are overwhelmed by is not the angry eyes of a judgmental judge, but the gracious embrace of a loving father. And this is amazing, church. It's their confession that leads them to focus on God. It's their confession that honors God. And as they confess, again, they are not met with the judgmental eyes of an angry God, but that rather they are reminded of an encounter afresh and anew, the compassionate, steadfast, never-ending, faithful, and patient love of God. That's the beauty of confession. Because in so doing, we are elevating God to a proper place of honor. Right? I mean, just consider the passage that we all think about with confession. Because I hope you do. If you've grown up in church at all, this is what you go to, right? 1 John 1, 9. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see where the focus of that is? It's actually not on you. 
Because if we confess our sins, what do we see? He is faithful. He is just. He forgives. He cleanses. He washes. Even that simple verse forces us to take our eyes off of ourselves. Yes, we made the mistake, but look at how great God is in the midst of it. It honors God in its proper place. We are reminded of the faithful love of a father. I'm, I'm convinced, hear me, church, of two things. I'm, I'm convinced there are two primary reasons why Christians don't want to confess their sins. One is we think too little of ourselves. Or, two, we think too little of God. But ultimately, both of these reasons don't hold God in his proper place. Let me, let me explain to you. So first, first reason, we avoid confession of sin. We think too little of ourselves. Here's what I mean. We beat ourselves up so much and are convinced that there's no way that God would show mercy and grace again. Can we be honest? Like, we've been there. I've been there. Like, we, we've talked about it in the past. We tend to struggle in patterns of sin, right? Like, 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 I know, David says, I know my sin. It's ever before me. He knows it because it's a pattern, right? It's, it's a pattern. And please, please, this is a side note. A free please don't tell people that if you were really sorry, you would never do it again. Because if that's the way that God looked at you, we'd be in a world of trouble. No, we struggle in patterns of sin. We do. And, and I have gotten to the point where I'm so tired of the struggle that I think in my mind that there's no way that God would still show me grace and mercy. Like this is the four billionth time I've done the same stupid thing and I can't stop. The mercy and grace of God has to have run out. We are embarrassed and we are shamed and we think that God's mercy isn't enough. But child of God, let me remind you of some truth. God loves you like a father loves a child and there is no amount of sinning you can do that can ever change his love for you. Right, Lamentations 22 and 23, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. Not because you stop sinning enough, but because of, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. First John, 1, or just John 1.16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. God doesn't give grace based on your performance. It flows out of his fullness, and his fullness is full. Well, Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 8, in him we have a dim redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Listen to this. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavishly pours out on us with all wisdom and understanding. You are loved by God, and there is no amount of sin that can change that. So humbly and earnestly confess your sins, and in so doing, see if God doesn't revive your praise by showing you not how wretched you are, but how amazing he is. But maybe that's not you. And I don't beat myself over my sin. Come on, Michael, you're making too big of a deal of that. Well, the second reason I think people struggle to confess their sins is because they think too little of God. And here's what I mean. We think that God isn't worried about our sin, that he's got bigger stuff to worry about than that. But let me just go back to 1 John 1.9 for a minute. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful just to forgive us of our trespasses, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I say it all the time, typically around communion time, but I'll bring it up again. That verse is not written to unbelievers. That's a verse that is written to the church. Why in the world would God call you to confess your sins if you didn't need to do it and it doesn't matter to him? Because here's the reality of it. Some of you are here right now and you don't understand why. And I'm going to try to tell you, some of us rebuild the dividing wall of hostility, right? 
And I'm not saying that we have like separated ourselves from the love of God forever. We can't do that. Thank God that Jesus never lets us go. That's Romans 8. But we can make our fellowship with God difficult when we refuse to confess our sins. I mean, David talks about that, right? I think it's Psalm 34, 32, where he says, my bones are broken because I refuse to, com- to confess. But then when I confess my iniquities, there was relief. Like some of us right now feel like that relationship that you had with God that was once vibrant and thriving is now, it's rocky. It's, it's not as strong as it once was. And maybe it's because there is sin that you have not dealt with. And there's, there's this wall between you and God. And he is saying to you, but if you would just confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you from your trespasses and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We praise God that our salvation does not depend on our ability to confess. But we've got to reckon with the fact that there are some, some walls that we've built up that is hindering a better fellowship with our father try to give you a practical example i have a father all of you did or do have a father not talking about whether they're good or they're not different conversation i will always be the child of my father always i will always have a relationship with him but if i'm constantly offending him I'm constantly rude. He's always going to love me. I'm always going to be my dad, but that relationship's going to be rough. But if I humbly come to him and confess my offenses against him, say, Dad, I was talking about you behind your back, right? I I was trying to to pit you and mom against one another because she's the nice one. I confess my sin. That relationship that was always present will begin to get better. You tracking with me? See, here's what I'm trying to get you to see. When we confess, our relationship will thrive because we will be honoring God in his proper place. And as we confess, we will find the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the patience of God. It will remind us of just how great our God is. And the greatness of God will spur us on to even more praise and greater faithfulness. Faithful confession that sees God for who he truly is is confession that recognizes God's posture of grace and mercy towards us in our sin. And in that recognition, God gets the glory. Again, confession does not indicate a weak faith. Confession reveals a faith that is growing and maturing and moving forward. Here's the third truth I want you to see. I don't want you to miss this. I'm actually not going to spend a lot of time here, but it does bear mentioning I want you to notice how confession is communal. You like the reference there, the whole chapter? It's the whole chapter. The entire process of confession, everything that we see in Nehemiah 9 is public. It's not private. It's communal. I mean, go, go back to the beginning with me, right? Like, like go, go back to verse 1. We, 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 we see it there. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites, all of them, Assemble. They together were fasting, wearing sackcloth. They put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent, they separated themselves from their foreigners. Again, all of this done communally. They stood on the fourth day, spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship. Again, that's that's communal worship. You see it even in in the, the multiple Levites who stand up and give instruction. But but then you see it. You see it again when you get to verses 36 and 37 at the very end of it, right? Here we are today, slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. 
They rule over our bodies and our livestock, livestock as they please. We are in great distress. Confession is communal. But we see this not just in Nehemiah 9. Go to 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. If I, this is God speaking, if I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people and my people who bear my name, my people, if they will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and they collectively will turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, I will hear their land. It's not just the Old Testament, though. You can go to James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its, in its effect. Again, go back to 1 John 1, 9. We've looked at it multiple times. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to me. With confession, there is absolutely a private nature to it. I'm not arguing that. Typically, every time I pray, every time, I begin with confession. Like that, that is typically the pattern of my personal prayer. It always starts there. Because I, I know I'm always entering the presence of a holy God as an unholy person. So I begin with confession. No one sees it. You'll never hear it. It's between me and God, but it's there. But the reality of that being a vibrant part of our personal walk does not remove the necessity of confession in the covenant community. I said it years ago. I'll say it, say it again. I think you can judge the health of a body to the degree to which they confess their sins to one another. Let me make it as plain as I can. We need to be confessing sin to one another. We need to. I mean, that's why, that's why if you're not in a community group, you should get in a community group because the, the part of the point of our community groups at the very end, every community does the, group does this. We split up guys and girls, right, for a time of intentional prayer and confession. And I think sometimes we miss the point of that, right? And, and we don't actually deal with real sin. We don't really deal with what we're wrestling with and we have a superficial relationship with one another. We need to be confessing sin. And please hear me, not, not the cliche cryptic confessions. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Hey, you know, pray for me. Pray for me. I'm just struggling with selfishness. Struggling with it. Well, what does that mean? Are, are you not wanting to share your possessions? Is that what you mean? Are, are you struggling to tithe? Is that what you mean? Are you being selfish by holding your cultural preferences over the cultural preferences of others and refusing to see the value and dignity of things that aren't the way you like it? What does that mean? Hey, pray for me, man. I'm struggling. I'm struggling with lust. Like, cool. Thanks for your honesty. What does that mean? Like, are you sitting up for hours at night while your spouse is in bed staring at a computer screen? Are you actively having an affair with another person? Right? Can you not control your thought? What do you mean? Like we need to be confessing sin to one another. Why? Because the prayers of a righteous person, it amounts to much. I need you praying for me. Because if I'm having to confess sin, I'm clearly not the righteous person in this situation. And I need you to be praying for me. We've got to be honest with one another about our sin because confession is not only private, it has to be communal as well. None of the confession that's taking place in Nehemiah 9 is done in private. Now I want to address two temptations real quick when it comes to confessing sin. Because I get it. I get why confessing sin is hard. I do. And I have felt both of these temptations. Right on one hand, there is a temptation for those confessing their sin to believe that people will think differently about you if you confess your sin so you don't do it. Right? The words of my wife always ring in my head when I get to something like this. What's the worst you're going to find out about me? I'm a wretched sinner in need of a great savior. Yeah, I know that already. 
But let, but let me say something to that. The temptation to feel like people will, will look at you differently if they know your sin. Two things I want to say about that point. I, one, I think there's a place for wisdom with who you share your sin with. Because not every Christian may be the best at handling every sin, and that's okay. There's wisdom needed, but it's not an excuse to not share it with anyone. But second, remember this. You aren't struggling with sin in a way that no one else does. I think one of the lies that Satan tries to convince us of is that somehow our sin is more egregious, it's more damning, and it's worse than anybody else's. But Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, what has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to humanity. Don't buy into the lie that your sin is somehow worse than anybody else's. And I want to say this is your pastor, right? This is some family talk. If you're visiting with us, cool. Join the church. This is for you too. All right. But for those of us who are family, if people start treating you differently because of your sin, bring it to us as elders and we will take care of that because it's a maturity issue. You should be confessing your sin to people. And if they aren't mature enough to handle it or sin against you, we'll help you. And we'll help them for our good as a communal body. It's not a I'm going to go get them. We need one another, right? But here's the second temptation. There is a temptation as the person who is hearing the confession, to boast in yourself as if you're better than that person. Can I just tell you, Jesus addressed this very thing in a parable in Luke 18. Do you remember? Jesus told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. He says this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is what Jesus says. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts in himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen to me. Before you are quick to come into this place and look to your right or to your left and say, I know what that person's been wrestling with, who are they to sit up in here and praise God like that? The better question, the right question is, who are you to sit up in here and praise God like that? Because let me remind us all, not a one of us were righteous enough to come to this place on our own. Not a one of us comes from a sin-free background. Yeah, you might, you might not struggle like that person, but the only reason you can say that is but for the grace of God. And the same grace that got you up in here is the same grace that got them up in here, and it's the same grace that will keep Keep both of you until the end. We need one another when it comes to confession, and we need one another to remind us of that same grace of God. You ain't better. It's just different. We all need that grace. One more point as I try to bring this thing to a close, and I'm in my seat. Here's the fourth truth I want you to see. Confession looks back with a confidence to move forward. Confession looks back with a confidence to move forward. Look at those last two verses. It says, here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. 
They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. In a very real sense, this is the culmination of the entire prayer. And it is an honest recognition of what their sin, watch this, and the sin of those who came before them has resulted in. They say, we are slaves. The land that was given to us, the land you promised, the land of blessing, we are slaves to others who rule it. But I want you to be very clear on this. That last line that we are in great distress is not them giving up. It is a cry for help and a confidence that in their future, it is a confidence in their future rooted in a belief that God will not give up on them. How do you know that, Michael? Well, because they are able to look forward and move forward with confidence because of what they just looked back on. Because of what they just looked back on. I mean, let, let, me, let me show you this real quick. I don't know. Yeah, verses... I want to make sure I have the slide. I'm going to show it to you in a second. I do have it, so I'll get it. Let me show you. In verses 3 through 6, or I'm sorry, verses 6 through 35, the bulk of that prayer is what we call a redemptive historical summary. That's what it is. It's actually the longest one in the Bible. There are a lot of, there are a lot of redemptive historical summaries, but in other words, what they do is they walk through the history of God's act to highlight his faithfulness. It's the longest one in all of Scripture. And even as they recognize the sin and unfaithfulness of God's people throughout the genera generations, this summary literally tells the story of God's faithfulness. And it's amazing because it walks through. Those verses, those 29 verses, walk through 12 books of the Bible. Let me, let me show it to you real quick. All right, if you take a notes, write this down. This is dope. Write this down, okay? I mean, I did, it made it into the margins of my Bible. Like, that's how I defined it. It's good. In verses 6 through 9, you have the book of Genesis. You have creation and covenant. I mean, you see it there, right? And you, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that. He starts with creation, right? That you are a God who speaks and stuff happens. I like the way that Garner Taylor said it, right? When the only pulpit that God had was the power of his own personality, he preached and something happened. But he starts at the beginning, but not only is this a God of creation, this is a God of covenant. He talks about Abraham, that, that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. God promised him blessing. But then it moves on, right? Because then you get to verses 9 through 15, and you see the story of the Exodus all the way up to Mount Sinai. You see the book of Exodus, right? So they're walking through the story. But then you, you get to verses 16 through 21, and you see the story of the people's rebellion in the wilderness that's recorded in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But then you get to verses 22 through 25, and you have the story of when Israel takes possession of the land. That's the story of the book of Joshua. But then you get to verses 26 through 31, and you have the repeated disobedience of the people of God, but God's faithful deliverance, then more disobedience, then more deliverance. You, you see this pattern that goes from Judges to 2 Kings. They literally walk through 12 books of the Bible. That's what they're looking back on. See, their confession makes them look back with confidence in order to move forward. So their confession that looks back allows them to believe that better things are ahead. Why? Because throughout the retelling of the story, there is evidence upon evidence that God is faithful to his people even when they are unfaithful to him. There is evidence that God is a forgiving God. 
I mean, let me show you three of them in those verses, right? I read them earlier. They have, they, there are three verses that have built-in shouts and amens, and you missed all of them. So I'm going to give them to you again, because if this is not good news that stirs your soul, I got nothing else for you. Right, you go back to, to verses 16 and 17, right? We see God's faithfulness during the rebellious times in the wilderness. Verses 16 and 17, it says, But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked, and they did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. Does it sound like any of us? All right? It says they became stiff-necked. They appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Does that sound like our political system? All right. Then you get to verse 18, or I'm sorry, 17. It says, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Here it is. And you did not abandon them. Okay, but then the second one comes right after that. Keep going to verse 18. And even after that, they cast the image of a calf for themselves. And they said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. And they committed terrible blasphemies. Here it is. And you did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. There's one, there's one more I want you to see. Flip, flip ahead, right? Pick up in verse 29. It says, you warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly and they would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which, personally, which a person will live by if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffened their necks, and they did not obey. And you were patient with them for many years. Not for a few hours, not for a few days. God was patient for years. And your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. We learned earlier they actually killed those prophets. It says, therefore you handed them over to the surrounding nations. Here it is, verse 31. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and a compassionate God. So watch this. They pray to God in their current distress. And here's the formula for you, okay? They, they pray to God in their current distress caused by their past sin with a confidence in what is to come because they know that the God they serve is the God who has a track record of faithful forgiveness. Don't miss that. They pray to a God in their current distress, which is caused by their past sin with the confidence because they know that the God that they're praying to is the God who has a track record of faithful forgiveness. Oh, help me, God. Like we look back throughout the pages of Scripture and we see that God has all kinds of forgiveness for our sin. We look back and we see that God's got the cover your shame and nakedness kind of forgiveness. Oh, I know it's true. I see it with Noah. Noah was delivered from a worldwide flood. He saw the judgment of God, but he was carried safely through the judgment on the ark. But don't forget what happened when he got off the boat. He discovered what happens when you let some liquor, or I'm sorry, some water ferment in some barrels. Noah discovered that wood for double oak, that triple sec, that Hennessy. I love it. Y'all looking at me like, oh, like a good Baptist. I know good and well it's in your house right now. All right, here we go. He got drunk and he got naked. And then he cursed his own son. You want to talk about some dysfunctional families. And still, the Bible says that Noah is a man who walked with God. And it's not because Noah was sinless. It's because God was faithful to forgive. But God's got the clean the blood off your hands kind of forgiveness. Oh, I know it's true. I see it with David. 
David, a man who was the undisputed ruler of the Middle East during this time, he brought peace to a nation that had never had it. He wrote the best worship songs of the day. But David started lusting after a woman that wasn't his. He got her pregnant, then rather owning his sin up front, he tried to cover it up, and he had an innocent man killed. He tried to sweep the whole thing under the rug by making Bathsheba just one of his wives. But then he got called out and caught. And still, David is said to be a man after God's own heart. And it's not because David was sinless. It's because God was faithful to forgive. Oh, God's got clean you up kind of forgiveness. I know it's true. I see it with Rahab. I'm not trying to make fun of her. She made her money in the red light district of Jericho. And still, her faith is listed to us as an example in Hebrews 11. It's not because Rahab was sinless. It's because God was faithful to forgive. Let me give you one more. God's got that blot out your transgressions kind of forgiveness. I know it's true because God said it. Isaiah 43, verses 25, I am the one. I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake, and I remember your sins no more. I just got to ask this morning. There's got to be somebody else in this room that can praise God that he's got blot out transgressions kind of forgiveness, that, that he will remember them no more, that that's his forgiveness. There's a story I heard a pastor tell. I'm going to tell you to you once. This is in my notes. Hopefully I get it right. Y'all remember, uh, remember Bill Clinton's son? Was his name Roger Clinton? Thank you. Somebody said yes, so I'm just going to roll with it. If not. If not, look it up. Uh, that's what happens if you try to tell another pastor's story that you heard like three years ago. Uh, Clint, Clinton had a rough presidency, right? So Clinton kind of got to the end of the presidency, and he didn't care anymore. <laughs> and so his last day on presidency, what he did was he pardoned his brother, gave a presidential pardon. Roger Clinton had been in all kinds of trouble. He was arrested. He was in jail at the time, right? So he just had a track record of wrongdoing. And so Clinton's like, I'm out anyway, whatever. So he pardons his brother, right? So then what happens is a few, a few months later, Roger Clinton's in LA. He gets pulled over by the police. He gets pulled over by the police, all right? They recognize him. He's like, I know you from somewhere. They run his tags. They say, oh, that's Roger Clinton. So then they pull up his rap sheet. Nothing there. Because the pardon of the big brother washed away all them transgressions. How much more the pardon of our heavenly father will wipe away all of our, there ain't no record of it. He cast it as far as the east is from the west. But maybe none of those did it for you. I'll give you one more. God's got that make you new kind of forgiveness. Now I know it's true because, because I see it with Jesus. When nearly 2,000 years ago in the city of David, a Savior was born. He is the promised seed. He is the prophet's hope. He is the suffering servant. He is God made flesh. And he knew no sin. And yet he perfectly kept the law in every way, but was still destined to die a sinner's death. He was the only person who has ever lived who did not need to confess his sin because he was the sinless one. And still he willingly laid down his life as a ransom for many. They put nails in his hand, church. You remember? They put nails in his feet. They hung him high. They stretched him wide. He died on that cross to pay for the sins of the world. And then they put him in a grave. But the grave could not keep him and death could not hold him. And early Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. And when he rose, he rose with your forgiveness in his hands. He rose with grace in his hands. He rose with salvation in his hands. So that what Paul says can be true. That in Christ, you're not better. You're not cleaned up. You're made new. Because that's how sufficient the forgiveness of God is. And church, while the people of God in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9 look back on a lighter, lower, and lesser testimony of God's faithfulness and his forgiveness, we look back on the greatest testimony. We look back on Jesus, and as a result, you and I this morning can confess our sins looking back with a confidence to move forward, not because we are sinless, but because God is 
faithful. And because God is faithful, we come before our God with confession, knowing that God will never fail to be faithful to us. And a faith that is moving forward is a faith that confesses if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our trespasses and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.